Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, you are wearing a sweatshirt that says Tandem. Is that a bike-related sweatshirt or a brewing-related sweatshirt or what? Um, so I guess it's a bike-related sweatshirt because it has a Tandem bike on it, um, but it is the name of a coffee shop in Maine. Um, so perhaps the coffee shop is named after the bike or perhaps they're named tandem for some other reason and they just use the bike as their symbol um i'm not entirely sure so why are you wearing the sweatshirt from the hipster main coffee shop <laughs> well uh mostly because it's warm and despite the fact that i live in alabama it's pretty cold out right now um but it's also like a sweatshirt that i particularly like because i did go to um this coffee shop in maine um not not over the break, but um, maybe a year ago. But on the same trip, also, um, Megan and I rode on a tandem bike, which is the only time I've ridden on a tandem bike, um, and certainly the only time we've done that together. Uh, and I would suggest that um, to people generally, um, also romantic couples. Have you ever ridden on a tandem bike, you all? I was about to say, I've never in my life ridden uh, on a tandem bike, but I uh, I have um, with my girlfriend, Don tandem kayaking. And I have to say that can be, it can be a relationship stressor. <laughs> it's like, no, you're paddling wrong. We're out of sync. You know? So it's, are the tandem bicycles sort of easier? Would you say? I think it's like a different kind of, so what you're describing sounds a little bit like learning to dance, which I also agree could be a stressor. Um, I feel like tandem bikes are a little bit more of like a trust exercise where first of all, you are relying on the person in the front um, to balance so like you're ba if you're in the back you basically like your life is in the front person's hands um but also i think i forget how it works it's like um one person can like end up doing all the work right so you can like lift your feet off and then the other person is like i was gonna say you. there's a temptation to socially loaf and just let the other person drive you know yeah so you have to trust the in particular the person in the front not to kill you and also to pull their own weight so yeah. Well, okay. So if you're in the back, you have to trust the person in the front, but you are able to monitor them to make sure that they're not loafing, whereas vice versa for the person in the front. So I guess it's sort of symmetric that way, which is nice. If you were to ride a tandem bike, would you want to be in the front or the back? Uh, I would want to be in the front. <laughs> were you in the front or the back? I was in the front. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Was that like, was there any discussion about that or was it just assumed that you were going to be in the front? I think that, um, I think that the reason that I was in the front um, was to counteract my general tendencies in, uh, probably relationships generally, which is to be in the back. Oh, like you really need to work on your assertiveness. That's good. Well, I hope it helped. Yeah, that's great. What kind of shirt are you wearing? You I, oh, actually, um, I'm wearing a, you can't see it and neither can our listeners. Now you can see it. Okay. It says Federal Donuts. It's a chicken and donuts place in Philly. Oh, they also nice. have coffee. Fun. We're both sort of wearing hipster cafe things. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, it's just the Bummer. sort of pieces Nothing of shit we are. Exactly. <laughs> We're still us. Lame. So, uh, yeah. Have Well, that actually uh, brings up a question I've been meaning to ask you. What, if anything, are you resolving to do differently? Oh, this is something that I've been thinking about. Um, I don't know if I have a good quick answer to that. Um, while I stall and try to think of one, do you have a, a New Year's resolution? Indeed, I do. I just came up with it today. 
So so here's the thing. We we got a Nintendo Switch. I don't know if you're familiar, unless you play video games. Uh, is there something that I need to know about it beyond the fact that it's like a video game console? No. Do you remember the game Zelda? Yes. There is a version of that game for it. Okay. And it is great. And the problem is that all I ever want to do now is play Zelda. <laughs> um, and, 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 and so I told my friend that today. And he was like, dude, you have tenure. Why don't you just play Zelda when you want to play Zelda? And so that is my resolution is to be like a little more chill about playing Zelda during the workday if that's what I feel like doing. Oh, I like that. I thought you were going to say that you were going to try to play Zelda less and I was going to be no. really disappointed with that. <laughs> no, exactly the opposite. <laughs> it's like, this is what tenure is for. I should be playing video games if I want to play video games. Okay, very good. Um, oh, yeah. All, all of the resolutions I can think of are like really boring. Like, um, I don't know, try to try to play the piano more okay so one resolution which i basically make every year but hopefully the listeners of this podcast w won't know this um is to to play more often at open mic so we in tuscaloosa there's like a super you may have been to this actually super casual open mic um at this place called uh druid city brewing company um and i've had beer from there on this show um and so every time i so most of the people who play at open mic like traditionally are like dudes who are playing the guitar. Although I would say that um, the, the, the Druid city open mic has actually become more experimental. So there are people who like, they basically like do karaoke and there's like people who use loop pedals and like do weird stuff and like use their computers and stuff. And so like, my thing is that I'll like, I, I have a, a weighted keyboard. And so I like bring that and it's like a children's piano recital kind of deal. Um, so every time I do that, I'm like, I should do this every week. Like, it feels like this nice community thing. It's on like Sunday nights. So it feels like, yeah, um, it's got sort of like a family dinner kind of vibe to it. Um, people are super supportive, no matter like how great or terrible you are. Um, but I really like dread it because it like, um, I think in general, I get some like, like public performance anxiety. Um, and this is just like something that it's like, uh, really amplified. Plus the fact that, um, when you're nervous, uh, it directly impedes your ability to play the piano. And so then, you know, you, you play more poorly. Um, so there's like a lot standing in my way, but, but it always feels super rewarding afterwards. Do you sing as well or is it just instrumental? No. Okay. But that is one thing that I have. Another goal of mine is to get, um, to get Megan to sing with me, which I don't know. I don't know how likely that is, but sometimes I've been trying to like learn how to play popular songs. Um, I'm a terrible singer. Is, is there anything that the listeners of this podcast can do to make this happen? <laughs> um, I, I guess like, you know, s send encouragement, um, uh, I don't know. Um, send beers, probably. <laughs> send beers. Send oh, send yeah, beers that's right. Do we Normally, we would do this during the Mitchell promo. But do you, do you want to thank the beer donor? Well, I do want to thank the beer donor. Um, but I haven't checked with the beer donor about whether I should name 
then? Oh, you know what? And we should probably just just to be safe because this was like on a non-public channel. Uh-huh. Okay, well, we can tease this. Okay. Somebody <laughs> sent Alexa some homemade <laughs> beer and I, I didn't get to try it um, because I'm up in Canada and can't get here. But but Alexa said it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that is going to be the next beer that I drink. Um, but I'm not, not going to drink it today, actually. Okay, good. Well, we will we'll check with this person to make sure that it's okay that we out them and then we will give them full credit. But so what are we drinking today? So uh, in in solidarity with um, Megan and her family, I am not drinking beer today. Um, So they do dry January, which I, I likely won't do with them for the entire month. But today I'm drinking a cranberry lime seltzer. Wow. They do. They do the whole month of January. Uh huh. Yeah, they have like sort of a ritual where they drink a lot on New Year's Eve and then they're like, never again. And then it lasts for a month. And then. Interesting. And you're at least for now, it's now January 7th Mm -hmm. as we're recording this. So at least for the last week, you've kept this up. No, actually, I um, (laughs) have already broken the rule. (laughs) Great. Wow. You're you're really you're crushing it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a bad participant in this. I'm trying I'm trying to be better in the most public forum that I that I drink in. You know, you're doing what you can. I guess that means I'm drinking for both of us. Let me just grab my beer here. Uh, so this is uh, the the brewery, I think, is called Jackal Hop. And it's got a little like antlers on the J. And it's a fake milkshake New England IPA. Um Strong beer, 6.7%. So this could be great or it could be terrible. I'm going to crack it open. And we're going to see. I think it's going to be great. That it's, sounds really good to me. I like your optimism. Yeah. Um, let's find out. Mm, it's actually really good. Yeah. I like the milkshake like, ones. Yeah. It's all like hoppy and, and creamy. Mm-hmm. Um I hope that I'm able to find it on untapped because it looks very indie. It's like stickers on the can here. So we'll see. Maybe this is like some underground Montreal beer that, you know, you can't can't know anything about. Where did you get it? I got it at the Maison de Beer, which is the like nicer beer store uh, that I go to when I'm not being super lazy. Actually, my girlfriend and I went there together because she, well, the story is that I drank one of her special beers while she was gone. And that made her upset. And then so I had to take her to the beer store <laughs> in order to get her different beers to make up for it. And the beer that I drank was no longer available. So then I felt really bad. Um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's a, there's a lesson there somewhere. Uh-huh, yeah. I was going to say it sounds like this worked out well for everyone, but maybe not. Well, she got lots of other beers, so I feel like it kind of did work out for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got this beer and a different beer that I will be drinking in the second half of the show. But yeah, uh, Maison the Beer. If you're in, if you're on the plateau in Montreal and you want you want to go to a cool beer store, highly recommended. Um, okay, so Alexa, we are we're doing more kind of like philosophy of science, huh? Yeah, I see that. Um, which <laughs> feels like it feels like a good segue from the drinking or not drinking beer because um i think i'm gonna need all of my brain cells firing at 100 capacity um to talk about this article yes uh so this article is called appraising and amending theory theories the strategy of lactosian defense and two principles that warrant it um by paul meal legendary clinical psychologist methodologists 
methodologist published in Psych Inquiry 1990. This, I should say, to give full credit, was suggested by James Steele, uh, a listener on Twitter who, after listening to our last episode, said, hey, you should really read this Palmiel piece because it's super relevant to what you guys talked about. Um, and in fact, I do think that is true. Uh, he says a lot of this stuff that we were sort of like stumbling around trying to say, but I think says it in um, a much more eloquent and smarter way. Mm -hmm. But it is a very long, dense article. So just honestly, how far did you get into this? Uh, I would say that I skimmed and by skimmed, I mean, like reading 10% of a page, the whole thing. <laughs> Right. So I'm the one who's drinking. Uh, me is the one who actually read it carefully. But it took me like days. I mean, like not like I read it the whole day, but I would like get burned out. And I'm like normally a fast reader, but it's just it's dense. Mm -hmm. So I would devote, I don't know, two hours a day to it. Uh -huh. And then I would feel like my brain was tired and I had to go do something else like play Zelda. <laughs> and eventually I like over several days. Well, at I least, made it. Yeah. Or at least you're meeting your resolution. That's the important thing. I am. I am. Paul Miel is helping me with it. Mm -hmm. So, so, so I think this paper, though, it, it has a ton in it, but the core of it tackles this uh, question that we were grappling with the last time uh, in part of the episode, which is when do you keep theories and try to fix them when they don't predict the world uh, as well as you'd like versus when do you throw them out? Um, and that's the Lakatosian defense uh, that Miel is talking about mm -hmm. here is basically uh, amending either the theory or some of the auxiliary assumptions that you're making that map data to the theory in order to avoid saying, well, we falsified this theory um, with these results that aren't entirely consistent with it. So, I think that's a really important question to have a good principled answer to. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I found the actual answer to when we should versus shouldn't keep defending theories to be that realistic. Yeah, I was I was having a hard time mapping. So first of all, yeah, it's it's interesting reading these like really philosophically dense papers because I mean, I think sometimes when you sort of like translate them into um, like lay terms, you lose something. Um, but also sometimes when you translate them to lay terms, they they sound kind of obvious. And and my reading of the like situation. OK, so so the question is when you find like evidence that seems to contradict a theory, when do you um, discard the theory and when? do you like resort to other kinds of defenses? So saying that like whoever collected this evidence um, did something wrong or made some faulty assumption or something like that. Right. Um, and the answer seems to be like when the theory has a good track record or something like that. Um, so the way that they, the way that Neil puts it in the article is that you need to consider both the theory's track record of making risky predictions in conjunction with its track record of making accurate predictions. Um, and that seems sensible to me. Um, so sure, like if a, a theory has made a lot of accurate predictions and they are risky predictions in the past, 
then we should be less likely to sort of throw it out. Um, but I have a hard time, I guess, knowing how to incorporate that idea into my evaluation of like psychological in theories that I encounter in like sort of my day-to-day -day job. So like I'm trying to think of an example of a psychology theory where it's clearly, it clearly has a really strong track record of making these risky, accurate predictions. And I'm not even really sure how to begin to evaluate that. And maybe, maybe that's because we don't have a lot of these theories with great track records, or maybe I'm just not used to sort of thinking in those terms. Yeah. So I think that's, that's totally right. Um, and he, I mean, to his credit, does try to formalize what we might say, uh, like how we might quantify whether a theory has made both risky and, and accurate predictions. I, the idea being that there are, if your predictions are insufficiently risky, then it's not hard to be accurate. So he has this example of if my theory mm -hmm. of the weather says it's going to rain sometime in April, that's not terribly impressive. The more specific I can be, uh, the more impressive it is if my theory is right. So it's riskier to say it's going to rain on these specific days in April, and it's riskier still to say it's going to rain on these specific days, and it's going to rain so many inches on these days. Mm -hmm. So the the increase in specificity ought to buy the theory something in in terms of how how credible we find it so two theories that are right uh the same percentage of the time but one theory is making much more specific predictions well then that theory should be esteemed more highly mm -hmm. is is the general idea mm -hmm. in psychology i guess a risky prediction would be something like um like you predict that an effect size is going to be between like a D of 0.25 and a D of 0.35 or something like that. Is that the idea? Well, so I think that the way that he quantifies it, yeah, would have to be. And I think we should spend some, at least a little bit of time talking about this idea of this kind of quantification. But in principle, I mean, what he says is just that it's, it would be a damn strange coincidence for the theory to have predicted the thing and the thing to have happened. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's, it's sort of more generally captured by this idea of surprisingness of this theory makes a prediction that we couldn't have gotten to easily some other way or something that seems non-obvious and in, 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 I guess a precise numeric prediction is one way to get there, but doesn't have to be. So, but here's where I get tripped up, which is like, okay, so if you're talking about a, a damn strange coincidence or something like that, so considering like a very simplistic um, experimental design, let's say you have like two groups and you're comparing them, right? Um, so you might have, you might, you might see that there's a difference between those two groups um, and I guess that, that seems like it only becomes a damn strange coincidence if you are also able to say something pretty precise about, um, the degree of difference between those groups, right? Because this get, gets back to the idea that they also talk about in this paper of the, the crud factor, um, 
maybe I'm sort of skipping steps because I know that I think the crud factor is usually applied to to correlations, although people have like extended the idea to experiments as well. But this is the idea. So the crud factor idea is the idea that everything correlates with everything in the, I guess, social sciences. So if you have enough power, there's always going to be some kind of like directional relationship between two variables. Um, and I think I think that idea has been extended to the idea of an experiment. So the in that case, it would be like everything influences everything. Um, so if if as just as a baseline, we're always going to see a difference between groups or we're always going to see some kind of correlation, then how can a prediction be risky unless it's sort of giving you more specifics about the size of that? Yeah, which is which is exactly Meal's point, I think, that uh, a significance test that says these things differ significantly isn't very strong evidence because that is not a very risky or, right, right. And I guess, precise prediction. Mm -hmm. Just saying, well, this thing is bigger than that thing, or mm -hmm. maybe not even that. Right. Like, these two are not the same. Um, and it's much better to say, well, under these conditions, the average value should be this, which psychological theories generally don't. Right. Okay. But then, yeah, I guess going back to you sort of like trying to generalize more beyond just like making a prediction about a range of effect sizes. Um, I guess you could also imagine an experiment where the difference between the two conditions is so trivial that we actually like would expect absolutely no effect. Um, and that would be a case where it's not really about the, about predicting like a tight range. It's about, you know, any sort of difference would be quite predicting any difference would be risky. So I don't know what, what an example would be like having half of your participants uh, use a, use a gray keyboard and half of them use a white keyboard and see if, you know, they have different results in some questionnaire, right? You would basically, you would predict no difference. Yeah. So I actually, I had this reaction too in the discussion of the crud factor in this paper, which is I not I think the the primary place where Mila's talked about this. I think he has a separate paper where he talks about this in more detail. Um but you know, I can buy that in correlational research that you're gonna get a lot of kind of negligibly small but at large sample sizes significant correlations. Mm -hmm. I've run a lot of experiments <laughs> that did not <laughs> find anything and you know maybe you, you you would say well if you had a sample size of 10 million or what i don't know i think there's a lot of null effects from experiments where given that the manipulation is subtle enough or has little enough to do with the dv that it really is surprising if there's an effect yeah right um well i mean maybe the 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 simplest explanation there, well, is just that you're a bad researcher, you know? Well, we know that that's true. But additionally, I don't know whether that proves or disproves the point. I mean, if it were true that uh, there's just this background noise that I'm somehow magically unable to pick up, that would make me pretty special, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a... a so my intuition is it just really doesn't... The crud factor doesn't apply to experiments in the same way. Um, it may be that that's wrong, but it also seems tougher to quantify. So you can get some idea of the crud factor 
in a given domain by just taking big data sets and sort of randomly correlating stuff and, and seeing, you right. know, well, what's the average correlation between theoretically unrelated mm-hmm. variables, right? It gives you sort of a baseline. Right. In experiments, how would you do, I mean, you're going to, you can't randomly pair manipulations in DV. I mean, you could, but nobody's going to do that and it would be a lot of work. So we really don't have any idea of whether that's true or not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that I know conceptually how you would do that. Um yeah, I guess you could just like um, somehow combine like a database of studies that have manipulated something and then focus on the effects of, of that manipulation on variables that are considered unrelated to that variable. So I guess you could imagine focusing on individual differences um, that are often included in experiments at the end to quantify like traits of the person participating in the experiment so like you could you could look at the effect of manipulations on like the big five or something like that which are presumably like not not predicted to be affected by the um the manipulated variable anyways yeah interesting i i like that as an idea actually like this is so those data might exist uh you know it's still that would be imperfect uh i don't know whether that would be I don't know what even is a representative sample of experimental manipulations, right? That doesn't, I don't know that that concept makes any sense. Yeah, I don't know either. And, but it's kind of interesting because if you, if you think about like what would fit the description that I just gave, right? So, so something that like intuitively without sort of having any theoretical background in a particular area, you would like, you would think this thing is not going to make any kind of difference. Um, But a particular theory predicts that it does. We actually have like many examples of that in social psychology, like a problematic number of those kinds of um, studies and predictions. Right. So for instance, like social priming makes all kinds of risky predictions. Um, Yeah. And like somebody who has no, theoretical background in social priming would never make those predictions. Right. Right. So that does, I I guess you're right that if you read this paper, you might say, ah, you know, Mill's principle says social priming has a lot of money in the bank. It's made all of these predictions that you would not get to any other way. And so therefore we ought to be really cautious about throwing it out just on the basis of a few uh, failed predictions, failed replications. I don't know exactly like how in the meal terminology you would talk about it. He's sort of assuming no p-hacking, right? He's yeah, assuming yeah. all of these effects are real. Yeah. Um, I, I think that like in principle, his point is fair. And so like if that assumption about no p-hacking were accurate, that would absolutely be the case for social priming. Um, so yeah, I mean, predictions like, you know, uh, like throwing a throwing a crumpled piece of paper in a trash bin. Um, oh, I forget what the finding is that that it like it makes you dwell on an idea less or something like that, or able to move on. Oh yeah, that's like the cognitive closure kind of like I'm done with it. Right. Yeah. Like like only a only a priming researcher would make that prediction. And if and if you consistently made predictions like that, that you know the the general public would be like, that's never going to work. Um, and then they consistently did. And yeah, there was no there was no p-hacking or um, publication bias involved. Then I would be super impressed by those theories. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I guess we ought to keep that in mind when we're talking about all of this is that this is presuming that these findings are all tr- trustworthy and replicable. Right. Um, but it also presents maybe a challenge. So so one thing that I was also finding, finding it hard to know how to follow this advice when reading the paper was like, okay, so should we be making riskier predictions um and if so like what does that look like exactly and yeah i mean i'm not i'm not convinced that it's like smart for psychology to be making riskier predictions and one of one of the reasons that i say that is i think that that's been like sort of the game that we've been playing for a long time right so um one challenge in being a social psychologist is that so many of the things that we study are very intuitive to people and people have like a pretty um, reasonable lay understanding of a lot of the sort of topics that we study. So in order to impress people with findings, I think that we have like a history of coming up with these pretty risky, pretty surprising ideas, right? These counterintuitive like theories and effects and things like that. Um, and maybe, maybe that is a good direction for the field to go in. So I understand that making the the risky predictions is, is the best way to like learn things that we didn't already know, but it also seems to have been, um, yeah, like a real impediment to our field because yeah, because of the combination of making these risky predictions and then using p-hacking to create the illusion of support for them yeah that's interesting it's it seems to me almost like we as a field do have an intuitive appreciation for this idea that in order to be interesting the theory has to make a a prediction that's i guess we would say surprising um and that he would call you know, a damn strange coincidence. Right. And the way that he's talking about it and the way that it's done in the physical sciences is that the theory has to make very precise predictions. And we haven't talked yet about how this interacts with um, hypothesis testing and we should get there. Um, But uh, for present purposes, it just matters that, you know, in the physical sciences, you give a very precise quantity that the observed value is supposed to be. And if it's not, then that's a problem for your theory, right? Uh-huh. And 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 so that's how they get this kind of uh, surprisingness doesn't seem exactly right in that context, but non-obviousness, right? Why, uh, why would you predict the specific value? And it, mm-hmm. it, we can't do that in psychology. And so instead, we've leaned on a different kind of surprisingness is like, whoa that just sounds crazy kind right. of surprising this maybe that's bad surprising this uh-huh <laughs> yeah i wonder whether we should talk a little more about his critique of um significance testing the way that it's done currently in psychology so so and i think this is a a really interesting point that he brings up that has to do with with sample size so he, you know, I mean, he's coming from the correlation world, I think. Um, but this applies somewhat to experiments as well, which is if you increase your sample size, you increase your power. And assuming that there's something going on so that your prediction is somewhat right, that increases your chances of getting a significant result. And that that goes for other ways of increasing power as well, right? So say you do within subjects measurement, uh, say you have a better, uh, less noisy 
measure, like uh, either self-report or behavioral or whatever it is, all of your increase in resolution is going to help you find effects. Whereas in sciences where they make specific point predictions, greater resolution actually means that you are better able to disconfirm the theory's prediction. So if I have a huge sample and I can say 39.5 is significantly different from 39.7, and my theory said 39.7, but the observed value was 39, mean 39.5, significantly different Mm -hmm. from what I predicted, that's a problem for me. Mm -hmm. So by increasing your sample size, you make the test more severe for the theory. Mm -hmm. Whereas in psychology, assuming we're using significance testing, Mm -hmm. by increasing sample size, you make the test easier for the theory to pass, um, assuming that it's a a little bit right, I guess. And I I don't know how how true that is in the experimental context, right? Like there, I think it's important that we get these big, well-powered null results. But if you're, you know, predicting positive correlations between things, for example, then upping your sample size practically, well, I shouldn't say necessarily positive. You're predicting some correlation between things. Mm-hmm. Upping the sample size practically guarantees you're going to find some correlation between mm-hmm. things. Right. And so I guess the the critique of using null hypothesis significance testing the way that we do um, is that we're making it too easy on ourselves or we're keeping the the bar is too low. It's like a pretty weak form of confirmation. Right. We because we're we're really just predicting differences. I mean, it's kind of funny to talk about this, you know, his his critiques really are about oh this makes it too easy. And then when we do these big high powered replications of lots of effects, they don't seem to pan out. So it's not like it makes it too easy to the extent that you're, oh, yeah, invariably able to find these effects. Uh-huh. Like, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Yeah, right. That's a good point, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I also have that reaction to some degree because it, it seems like there's this sort of underlying assumption, and this is, like, uh, reflected in the crud factor idea, that um, that basically rejecting the null hypothesis, which is, um, you know, what we usually interpret, and there are all kinds of problems with this, but what we usually interpret as support for a theory, that that rejecting the null hypothesis is really easy to do. Um, and as you say, there's, there's lots of examples from like, from your own, uh, from your own work, <laughs> from um, replication studies that um, suggest that that's not as easy as maybe Mill makes it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one counter to this paper might be, well, you got to walk before you can run. Right. And you, you, Paul Meal, have all of these critiques about how this is like uh, making it too easy for us to find, find things. And uh, we're not even reliably doing that. So maybe, maybe let's just focus on getting, you know, reliable findings of differences from experimental manipulations before we worry about something fancier, like predicting a functional form or, you know, ordinal differences where, you know, if they get like a 
dosage dependent response or something like that. That seems to be like kind of beyond our grasp almost at this point. Yeah. Uh, the the trying to run before we can walk idea is a very articulate way of describing my reaction to the paper, which is just like if if I imagine psychologists trying to do what what meal I think is suggesting, which is to like develop these theories that like attempt to make really, really precise predictions about how people will behave or how manipulations will affect people. Um, it, that just seems like, uh, yeah, beyond our, our grasp, like, as you say, we often can't even successfully make the directional predictions. Um, right. Right. Um, okay. So I know you're not drinking, but I've sort of powered through this. Beer. It was really good. And I just wanted to keep drinking it. So nice. I think I have to get another. Okay. Let's let's take a quick break, and uh, then we can we can pick it up there. Sounds good. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. Mickey and I will see it. We'll send it to Alexa if it's something she needs to see. The email goes to all three of us, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, so you can reach us there as well. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com where you can listen to any of our episodes or drop us a note. Uh, just a reminder that if you are enjoying the show, if you rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice, uh, that really helps us out. It just helps other people find the show. Alexa, have I left anything out? No, that sounds good. Sweet. All right. So uh, beer number two is from a brewery called, I think they're French, so I'm going to try and say it the French way, Hermite. Hermite? I don't know. It's called IPA Smash. And it's, well, I think it's just an IPA. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have any other fancy um, attributes. And I'm cracking it open now here. Yeah, let's see. Mm. It's nice. It's like not too bitter, which happens sometimes with IPAs, you know, where mm -hmm. they just like try and, yeah. Um, as, to be honest, I like the first one more. It was like kind of like more special and interesting, but this one's pretty good. Does the first one taste more like a milkshake? Oh yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. I love that like lactosiness. I'm. Uh -huh. I feel like being lactose intolerant is just like it's such a 
I mean, in the big scheme of things, not important, but like you really just miss out on some nice things in life, I feel. Yeah, that's true. Like, um, uh, what are they, those things called? Have you ever had a bushwhacker? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, what is that? Uh, I think that it's pretty specific to Alabama. It's basically like an alcoholic chocolate milkshake, but it's like um, maybe between like a chocolate. No, I think. Yeah. I was going to say between a chocolate milkshake and like a Wendy's Frosty. Um, but those things are pretty close together. Yeah, it, they're delicious. Um, and they have a lot of lactose in them. Yeah, I can imagine. That does sound great. Uh, the next time I visit, we're getting bushwhackers. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so I, I feel like we ended on this like idea that um, that maybe we're like not ready to abandon um, null hypothesis significance testing in psychology, perhaps because like our theories are not advanced enough or not precise enough. And so actually like we're doing pretty well if we can make a directional prediction that we can detect with um, the kinds of power that we're used to collecting. Um, and there's a section in the paper that talks about, uh, it addresses the question, is it ever correct to use null hypothesis significance tests? So I guess Neil is making room for cases where using NHST or something like that, um, is allowable in his mind. And I'm curious to see whether you think that these examples, um, encompass the kinds of work that psychologists are typically doing. So he gives two cases where it's like just doing like a regular old significance test would be fine for, you know, the, for our purposes. Right. And one is, um, so I'll, I'll quote him. He says, uh, where, where we are not primarily interested in examining the verisimilitude of an explanatory theory, um, but rather in evaluating a technique, for example, a tool, procedure, an action aimed at some pragmatic end. So this would be something like um, we're trying to compare two types of interventions or compare, I mean, as psychologists, we're probably not often comparing two kinds of drugs or something like that. Um, but basically where we want to know if one thing has a different effect than another and sort of any difference could be important. Um, and and Mill categorizes this as like uh, cases as technological problems. But I think this category might be quite a bit broader than technological problems. Um, so maybe we could start there. Like, is it common for like questions that we ask in psychology to be um, sort of like interesting no matter what the difference between two groups or manipulations is? Um, yeah, I mean, I read that as being, these are more applied questions. Right. You want to know which of two advertisements is more effective or which of two drugs better treats a disease. No, I mean, you know, we're, there's sort of an allergy to applied research in a lot of psychology where we pride ourselves on being all about theory testing and the application is for the, those people over there, you know, the subhumans. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's like 100% that was um, the like message that I got when I was in grad school and throughout my training was that basically like, um, I don't know, something like applied questions are too practical or something like that. We're not we're not learning about human beings, you know, at their core. We're just like uh, learning 
something about some specific instance. And more and more, I feel like those are the only questions we're really equipped to answer are the really specific applied questions. But maybe that's too much of a, of a tangent. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that the situations where we could be like pretty interested in sort of like any difference between two things, um, even if it's quite small, uh, I think that there are... Pr- that those examples are not that uncommon in psychology. So I think the example that Mill gives is is kind of an applied example. Um, but I mean, it seems to apply to a lot of these like risky predictions that I've been criticizing, right? Like, you know, if it really made any difference at all, throwing a piece of paper in the trash can on your cognition, right? Then that would be like pretty, um, pretty interesting to know even if it wasn't a very big difference, right? Um, Yeah, although I feel like that's a little, it's a bit different in that um, when we want to know whether the drug treats the disease, then we're not trying to make some further inference from the observed outcome to something else, right? We just care that mm -hmm. it treats the disease. And in your example, right, What there's some other theoretical stuff that makes that an interesting question, right? We're Mm -hmm. making some inference about the, and this tells us something about how people think. And that is where I think Mio would have a problem. Yeah, that's a good point, right? So if we, if we only want to draw conclusions about throwing papers in trash bins, then that's totally fine. Um, Yeah, which I don't think those researchers would be happy with that. It's like, (laughs) oh, we just see the psychology of throwing things away, you know? Yeah, right, right. Which actually basically is the the second example, the second category of of questions or tests where Meal says that null hypothesis significance testing is acceptable is situations where um, there is, again, quoting, um, essentially no difference between the content of the substantive theory um, and the counter null statistical hypothesis. Um, so basically where what you would observe, um, the evidence that you would observe that would support a hypothesis, um, or I guess like contradict the null hypothesis is essentially worded exactly the same way as the theory, right? So you don't have to make much of a leap to go from what you're observing and the theoretical claim that you're trying to make. And Mill gives an example. So he talks about um, testing these ideas in agronomy. Um, And he says, where the difference between the statement, those plots that were fertilized yielded more corn, and the statement, it helps to grow corn if you fertilize it, is of no consequence. Um, So basically, like, what you're observing is, that is the conclusion that you're trying to draw. You don't have to sort of, like, go from abstract operationalizations back to sort of the the, um, terms of the theory. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's totally right. Um, I think that in psychology, again, that's kind of not the usual case. Um, and that, so he, he gave an example there of also, of I, I think of doing something with rats and mazes, which I didn't quite follow because, uh, I'm not a behaviorist, but, you know, taking that on its own terms, you could say like, yeah, well, the point is the rat did this. Um, and that's what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. And then you have the problem of like drawing the inference from the rats who are like, you know, obviously you're not studying rats for the sake of understanding rats. You're trying to say something eventually about people. And then there's a big gap there. 
that gets you into trouble, right? You're mm-hmm. like great with the rats. You're like super methodologically sound saying things about rats. But then there's a huge gap and you do want to say things about people in the end. Mm-hmm. And that then gets you into trouble. I mean, this is my understanding of the eventual... Mm, I don't want to say that behaviorism collapsed because it certainly like it's still used in lots of contexts, but it was like the dominant paradigm in psychology. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because people realized suddenly, Hey, that it's a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. We can't, when we try to take the things that we've learned about the rats and say things about the people, it's just like a ridiculous stretch Mm -hmm. and it doesn't tell us anything useful. Mm -hmm. So we have to go elsewhere. Right. So this is actually reminding me of a paper that we read recently in my lab uh, that I I quite liked in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I picked this because I, I saw some people praising it on Twitter. It's Nature Human Behavior. It's called Latent Motives Guide Structure Learning During Adaptive Social Choice by Yeren Van Bar et al. Um, came out last year. Did you like my like little flex with the pronouncing the Dutch? I did. If only your beers were Dutch. <laughs> if only. <laughs> I'm sure the actual Dutch people are listening. I'm cringing right now. <laughs> it's a tough language. I try. Um, so basically, what they do in this paper is they ask people to predict what supposed other players are going to do in different economic games. Um, and the idea is that these, these other players, which are, uh, I think the subjects are told they're people, they're, they're not, it's just pre-programmed strategies. They follow different strategies. So one strategy might be that I'm risk averse. So if I, uh, if I can avoid the lowest outcome by betraying you, then I do that. If I can avoid the lowest outcome by cooperating, then I do that. Um, another strategy might be, uh, that I'm risk insensitive. So I just look at, oh, where's the biggest payoff? And I'll just do that. Mm-hmm. So that might mean cooperation in some games. That might mean betrayal in other games. Maybe I'm cooperative, which is I always want to do the nice mm-hmm. thing, right? So these are different strategies. Um, the computer players have these pre-programmed strategies, which means that they cooperate. Sometimes they betray other times, depending on the structure of the economic game. And mm-hmm. the idea is, can people infer these strategies? Mm-hmm. And then they do this like really cool of modeling where they have a computational model that tries to learn what people's predictions look like. And you can compare different models to each other to say like, okay, let's say we let the model learn uh, game specific uh, behavior. So like, you know, what is the player going to do in this specific game versus that specific game? Okay. Let's say we let it learn cross game motives and other things like that. So you can say, okay, which of these models best approximates people's actual judgments? So it's it's really cool, sophisticated stuff. In the end, it still is NHST in that it's saying, okay, which of these models fits the data mm-hmm. best, right? So that's just a p-value in the end. Um, but all of this really nice, really complex modeling is just about can people extract motives from behavior in these economic games? And I kind of feel like they ought to be able to Mm -hmm. just given that people care about motives and they talk about motives a lot and they're thinking about motives a lot. And Uh so if it's like, oh, this person seems greedy, they're always going for the biggest number. Mm -hmm. I I would hope people would be able to do that. And so then I had the same problem of building the bridge from this really cool finding, which is 
but if you're like, what is it about? It's about inferring motives from these like very constrained economic games, uh-huh. the behavior in them, right? Uh-huh. You're like, okay, well, what then? Where do you? Wh- what's that tell you about people? Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't know. I, they can infer motives, you know. It's it's sort of the same thing where like the cleaner it is, like in terms of the inferences, then the tougher it is to go to the real world thing you care about. Yeah, right. So like the, yeah, the findings that we can be sort of like the most confident in. Um, tends to be the ones that sort of like wouldn't be that surprising to people. And I don't know, I'm, there's something that I really like about work like that because, um, yeah, I mean, maybe sometimes we, I, I guess there's the hindsight issue, right? Like, so maybe it seems really obvious that people would be able to do that, but, um, but it's also feasible that people, that they could have done this experiment and people weren't able to infer that. And, um, and maybe if that had been the finding from the start that we wouldn't, we like, uh, that wouldn't seem surprising. Right. So, um, yeah, like maybe, maybe this finding is more surprising than we're giving it credit for. Um, but the other thing is, and I guess like I'm on the fence about this, like sometimes I, I like studies like this and sometimes I think we shouldn't bother, which is like, there's something like creative about work like that, that has appeal almost the way that that art can have an appeal where just like seeing how somebody has tried to address a question and like learning about the nuances of the way that they design their study um, can be like really fascinating to people who are in the field and are reading it. Um, I don't know. That's not usually like, I think where we get our meaning as psychologists Um, but yeah, I think that, that the places that we do get our meaning, um, which maybe sometimes is like, oh, we're trying to have like an impact or we're trying to, um, improve our own and others understanding of human behavior is just like such a lofty goal that we, um, maybe we need these more sort of like proximal, um, goals to motivate us. Yeah. Yeah, and I I don't want to underrate the extent to which just mm-hmm. the methodological coolness made it an enjoyable paper to read for sure. I you know I almost resist putting the findings in terms of surprisingness. Mm-hmm. So I would find it kind of surprising if people weren't able to infer motives at all. It turns out they're like okay-ish. Mm-hmm. I I think the um, the plurality of people are able to infer just. Uh, the player cares about where the biggest number is. Mm -hmm. So they call that greed in the paper. You could also call it, um, you know, being risk insensitive. And then some some observers are better and are able to infer other motives as well. Mm -hmm. Let's say that people were just spectacular and we're just nailing it. Mm -hmm. Like we're just perfect in their inference of motives. I'd be like, wow, that's kind of weird. I'm definitely surprised. What does that tell me about real world social behavior. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know that the amount of surprisingness in the paradigm changes how much I'm able to say, this tells me something about something in the real world that I, that I care about. Right. Because it's one thing to say like, Oh, you demonstrated a surprising example of people's behavior, but it's another thing to say, this then implies something about human behavior on a regular basis that you would be surprised by. Yeah, I'd be like, wow, strange that they're great at this game. Yeah, exactly. But 
<laughs> but what? You know, uh-huh. and this is again like not to downsell this favor, which which I really did enjoy, but there's that gap. I feel and I you know, and I feel maybe the right way to evaluate it is what we're doing is we're building a new approach. Um and these methods as we develop them will get more and more sophisticated and the questions that we ask will then get closer and closer to the real world stuff that we care about but you know that's what the rat people thought too mm-hmm. and then it ended up collapsing after like 30 years so it's it's quite a you, you kind of have to make them alone right you're it's you're sort of they'll, they'll pay you back later in results that you care about in real world context yeah right um yeah, like when you when you were talking about the the rat people and you know a leap too far. I mean, like I was saying earlier with the the difference between like applied and basic research. I mean, applied research questions even seem like challenging to answer, but it seems maybe possible. So like if you have a context and a population that are sort of circumscribed enough where you can be like, okay, I'm pretty confident that I don't know using this grading approach versus that grading approach in my Alabama psych 101 classes is going to have some impact or something like that. Right. Then, then yeah, maybe you can learn something and maybe you can sort of like depend on what you learn. But once we, once we get to these basic questions, the, there are so many leaps that we have to make, you know, it's like, it's not just the, the leaps from rats to humans that are hard. It's also like one group of humans to another. And then we always like, we have some set of like stimuli that we're using in our study. That's not necessarily representative of, of the things that we want to draw generalizations about. And, um, our manipulations aren't usually like sort of perfect proxies for the sort of conceptual variable. So yeah, we have to make so many leaps to make any sort of general claim about, human behavior that yeah i'm that also seems sort of like hard to defend yeah yeah so if you go through what meal said that you had to assume in order to make an inference from a result to saying something about a theory um there's all these auxiliary things that are involved right so he says there's auxiliary theories that are associated with your main theory that kind of link it to the observations mm-hmm. um that we have to believe are true um, there's the belief that all else is equal between different tests of the same theory, right? Which isn't that like literally everything is the same, but that there's not a systematic difference mm-hmm. in in different runs, if you will, of the same experiment. Um, there's auxiliary theories regarding uh, the instruments that you're using, uh, that those are working in the way that you expect them to. And if you get a falsification or let's just say you get a result in one case that doesn't match a result in another case. Well, where do you point the finger? You know, it could be any of those things, right? It could be that the uh, the theory is wrong, um, and or it could be that something has changed uh, in your context, in your participants. Uh, it could be some of the auxiliaries are wrong. It could be the instruments are doing something weird, right? There's just so many sources of variability, um, and this. Uh, reminds me of an email that we got from a listener that I have not written back to yet, although I, I mean to, and I'll, I'll just say this in kind of general ways because I'm not sure that we have permission to disclose all of this, but basically the person said, I was in a position to run these very highly powered AB tests in industry and we would get effects that were very strong and then they would just disappear. Hmm. And that's, you know, this hidden moderator stuff Mm-hmm. which we sort of scoff at, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, hidden moderators are why your, 
sorry, N of 50 study didn't replicate in this multi-site, you know, large scale replication. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it's like P is less than 0.0001 the first time you try it, Mm -hmm. and then it's gone the second time, it's like, shit, something happened there. Mm -hmm. Like some some part of the, I would say the all-l sequel was violated there. Was it that conditions changed? Um, that there is some systematic difference in the audience across different runs of the test. Who knows? But that's kind of freaky. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, so like the hidden moderator thing, uh, I've certainly scoffed at hidden moderators before. Um, But it's also like, that is also the explanation for why it's so hard to generalize, right? Because there obviously are many hidden moderators. Um, And so, yeah, it's sort of like you roll your eyes when, uh, yeah, you get this huge replication project that's not finding the same result as an original finding. And you're like, and people are like, oh, yeah, it's because, I don't know, you used a computer instead of paper and pencil or something like that. Um, But then when when people like draw conclusions at the end of their papers and they're like, okay, well, we did this study in this population of people in this format and um, this is what we found. And therefore human beings everywhere act this way in all sort of similar scenarios. And, you know, they will until the end of time, then I'm also rolling my eyes, you know? Yeah. That's, I mean, that I, I think that's very fair, right? We, we make these very general statements and they're, they're really not warranted. And then, Sometimes when uh, the data don't back us up, then we resort to pointing at particulars and, oh, well, you know, it's all contextually bound, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, still, though, I'm I mean, I, I my mind is sort of blown by the idea that, like, we're we're so focused on just the low hanging fruit of, you know, doing the doing the stats right. Uh, not p-hacking, decent sample size, all of that stuff. And that, as this article illustrates, and and this listener email is, illustrates, is just scratching the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Even if we're like, every result, we have like a magic guarantee from a good fairy that it's 100% reliable, mm-hmm. right? Like that difference really was significant in at that time and place. We're still like a really, really far way away from being able to say like truly generalizable things about underlying regularities of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that is that depressing? <laughs> is it? I don't know. Like, oh, there's so much left to be discovered. I mean, I worry sometimes that it's like we're just uh, – or is it like uh, – to digging sand while we're standing on sand or maybe quicksand. I don't know if this was some <laughs> phrase from his, right? Like it, it's, it's definitely possible that we're trying to do something that's just like, can't be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the current methods aren't good enough, too bad. So sad. Go do something else. Right. Right. Um, okay. So, so Neil seems to think that we can, the, the sort of like non nihilistic solution to these problems is is to have a revolution where we abandon um, null hypothesis significance testing. And I, I'm sure people know this, and it may have been in the 90% of this paper that I didn't read closely, um, but but what is his alternative? So, so he talks about how um, his paper is not reformist, but that it re- 
that it calls for like a total revolution where we um, test these questions in a completely different way. Um, so what are we supposed to be doing instead? Yeah. So so what he wants is for theories to make uh, more precise numeric predictions and ideally uh, to predict a functional form that says, you know, if you get this dosage of this, your response is going to be, you know, this, you know, number and some metric. If you get this dosage, the number is going to be that and some metric and so on. So to really make like precise numeric predictions in the way that that other sciences do. And and then you don't really need NHSC. I know you're like, you're kind of looking incredulous right now because it's like, we're so fucking far from. No. Yeah. Like that, that is not, I feel confident that if we start trying to do that in psychology, it's not going to make things better. It just seems impossible. Yeah. Right. So this is where like, he has this quantification idea of you can uh, quantify the idea of like how much credit should a theory earn for making a prediction by saying what's the range of possible values and then um, how close did the theory get to the actual observed value. And then you do sort of a, a scaling that says like, okay, well, if the range is one to a thousand and you're off by one, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. If the range is one to two and you're off by one, that's not great. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the basic idea. Um, but we're just not at a point I feel where really any, I, I, I'm racking my brains to be like, what well-known theory in psychology makes these sorts of precise numeric predictions? So this approach of um, like testing whether your effect falls within a particular range, this can be done with equivalence testing, right? So are people are people who are using equivalence testing making these kinds of predictions? You know, that's something I know less about than I should. Um, and uh, maybe listeners can write in and, and tell <laughs> us. I I don't know. I, I don't often see equivalence testing used except to say mm -hmm. uh, this effect is smaller than some boring number. Right, right. You know, they, this size effect would be uninteresting and it's smaller than that. Right. Even though it's you know not precisely zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is great, but it's not what Meal's talking about here, I don't think. No, yeah. Okay, so I thought of I thought of an example. And this is you know, as a grad student I would go to <laughs> I would go to conferences and actually go to the talks, right? Um and 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 I would go uh to the judgment decision making conference. And there people would they would try to model like value functions over gambles. And so they would give people, you know, many different gambles that varied in the odds of winning and the amount you could win and maybe you could lose money or maybe you could only win money. And then they would try and model their preferences by looking at like hundreds of trials of what they would do on these hypothetical gambles. And like you would incentivize it by like, you know, one of these gambles is picked and you do a for real or whatever. And and so that kind of does this sort of curve fitting stuff that Mila's talking about where they're like, okay, our theory predicts that people should have this kind of function in their response to the probabilities and the values involved. And we can see how well do people's actual responses fit the theorized function of responses. Mm -hmm. I, I always fucking fell asleep during those <laughs> talks. They're so fucking boring. And, and no offense to the people who do that very important work. But there, then again, you're like, okay, what does this tell you about real world behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Does this transfer to like somebody deciding, I don't know, whether to put money in Bitcoin? I don't see how. Uh -huh. Maybe. Uh -huh. Maybe it does. And I'm just, I'm just behind the times. But I kind of doubt it. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the like conclusion that I'm sort of drawing from all of this is that uh, our lives are pointless. Yeah, and we should quit and get different jobs. Yeah, but are other jobs less pointless? You know, I've been thinking about getting into day trading, non-fungible <laughs> tokens. Have you been reading about that? <laughs> Seems like there's money to be made. I feel like you should just become one of those. You should get into esports. I should get it. <laughs> you know what? If if you ever saw me play Zelda, you would not say that. I'm so terrible. I just like I wander around, some monster fucking bashes me with a rake, I'm dead immediately. It's really it's it's embarrassing. It sounds yeah. so addictive. <laughs> it's super addictive. Because if you want to go get that guy, you're like, fuck you, you're not gonna kill me. I didn't throw a bomb at you from far away. <laughs> There are bombs in Zelda. Zelda is different than I remember. Uh, I got a magic rune that allows me to generate bombs at will, man. Wow, cool. And then I could chuck them at monsters. That's pretty great, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I hope that we've done Paul Mule justice. Um, thanks again uh, to James Steele for suggesting this topic. We'll talk to you next time.